Talk with Ben Tompkins. Hey, what's going on, everybody? This is Real Talk. I am Ben Tompkins. We are presented by Nobody Currently. These are the Mixtape Days. And man, we got a special episode for you today. Now, you know, by and large, I pretty much retired from sports radio, but I still obviously am a sports junkie. So today's episode is really special. It's almost like a crossover because I get to talk sports through the lens of sports, but really we're talking about organizations, we're talking about culture building, and I'm talking about those things with my guy, Graham Honaker. Let me tell you about Graham Honaker. Graham Honaker is a storyteller, a leader, a father and a husband, a writer, a culture builder, a college basketball junkie, and for the last several years, he's been the executive director of Principal Gifts at Butler University, where he oversees their marketing and fundraising efforts. He's also the co-author of the book, The Cinderella Strategy, The Game Plan Behind Butler University's Rise to Prominence. And back in November of 2020, Graham had sent me a message on LinkedIn announcing that this book was going to be coming out in March 2021. And I told him at the time, hey, would you want to come on and plug this book up and I'll get your story and we can make an episode together? And he was like, yeah, sure. And then we kind of just got caught up in life and I was going through some old LinkedIn messages and realized that I had never really followed up and that it just kind of died right there on the vine. And I was like, you know, this would be a really cool way to kick off March Madness than to get him on and grab a storyteller to share one of the greatest Cinderella stories of all time. What could be better, right? To coincide with March. And I, I was just like, yeah, let's do that. So this is a really awesome episode. The book, The Cinderella Strategy, details how Butler started its move towards the Final Fours as far back as 1989, forged a synergy between a big-time athletic program and a serious academic institution in the process, and then leveraged that Cinderella story for all that was worth. And it's a case study of how a complex organization can find, manage, and multiply success without having to trade its soul in the process, which is very important. What I love the most about this book is that even though we're talking about these things through the lens of college basketball, at its core, the book is a case study in leadership, in management, in building teams and cultivating cultures. We're talking organizational structures, underdogs, small business, big business. It all applies. It's all connected. That it happens to be in the college basketball world is just a pleasant bonus. Not only does Graham share his personal story with me, as well as do a deep dive into the key topics addressed in the book, there's also some really incredible stories he shares about taking psychology classes with Tim Duncan at Wake Forest, or working in the athletics department at Indiana University during the last days of Bobby Knight. There's a story about Brad Stevens that may be the greatest story that's ever been told on this show by someone other than me, of course. <laughs> I'm kidding, kind of. But it is honestly probably my favorite story that's ever been told on this podcast. Real talk. We touch on Chris Mack. We touch on Coach K, Jimmy V, Sister Jean, the impact of storytelling and how Graham uses that in order to achieve the goals that him and Butler are striving for. What makes a great Cinderella story? What are the key cornerstones of the Butler way? What's the halo effect? How are things shifting with NIL, the transfer portal, and conference realignment? We cover a lot of ground in this one, plus his new book that will be dropping later this year titled Unbracketed, 
how four college basketball programs burst the bubble and made the big time. Not going to lie, I'm feeling pretty inspired after this one, and I hope that if you're a first-time listener to the show, welcome in, my friends. You check out some of the other episodes that we've been doing lately, and here's some of the other Cinderella stories, if you will, that we've been highlighting, featuring an epic cast of storytellers, entrepreneurs, creatives, and beautiful human beings that I'm proud to know and call friends of the show. Real people, real stories, real talk. That's what we do, baby, and that's what we're about. And I hope you enjoy listening to this episode half as much as we enjoyed playing it for you because we had a ball. And if you do, please drop a quick rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Follow along on Instagram, either at RealTalkWBennyT or at BennyTomp18. I'm also at BennyTomp18 on TikTok and Twitter. Uh, Facebook page for the show is at RealTalkWBennyT. You can follow Graham on Twitter at TGHoneke. Connect with us on LinkedIn, buy the books on Pediment. The new book is coming out on Pediment, Pediment.com. And the other book that we're talking about, the main book, The Cinderella Strategy, is available BarnesandNoble.com, Amazon, everywhere that you can buy a book. And also, please subscribe to this podcast so you never miss another episode. I mean, after today, if you're not sold, <laughs> I don't know what to tell you, my friends, because this type of episode right here, is just what I love to do. This is just amazing. I, I, I'm absolutely listening back to this in post-production. I was sitting on the edge of my seat through these stories. Like the, I, I absolutely, this is one of my favorite episodes I've ever done. So without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Graham Honaker. All right, I'm joined now by my man, Graham Honaker. Graham, how you doing, man? I'm doing great, man. Thanks so much for having me. This is great. We've been uh, we've been connected on LinkedIn for a while, and uh, you know sometimes I'll just be scrolling through there and then realize that I'm connected with people and they've got really cool job titles. They're doing really cool things. They're writing new books, which we're gonna get a chance to speak to you about a couple of the books that you've published and one that's coming up. But um, you're with Butler University, and this seemed like a pretty cool way to kick off March Madness. Yeah, I'm so excited. You know, you look at, unfortunately, we, Butler, were not in the bracket yesterday, but just, you know, really having gone a couple of years without a tournament with fans being a part of this. I think just, you could just feel the energy and the excitement yesterday when the brackets were announced and, and knowing, you know, Ben, that there were going to be fans coming. So it's a my favorite time of year and it's actually sunny and 55 here in Indy. So I, I'll take that. Yeah, the... Not to bore anybody with Midwestern weather updates, but we had a couple of days in the 70s and then a snowstorm came through. So it's just, <laughs> that's March, you know, but it's good to get you on and I'm glad that we could sit down. And so thanks for making the time to do this. I think it's, I think it's cool what you do and I'm excited to get to talk to you. So let's yeah, jump in. Honor with to be a, here. Hey, <laughs> let's, uh, let's jump in with your story. Tell me where you grew up and how you grew up. Yeah, then I grew up all over the country. I uh, My dad's career took us to seven different states by the time I was 18. So Kentucky being one of them, but Oklahoma, Louisiana, Florida, Virginia, West Virginia, Michigan. I would say it's easier for me to name the states that I, I didn't live <laughs> in, I think, than the ones that I did. But grew up all over, but grew up a, just a diehard basketball fan. I mean, from the day I was like nine years old, I remember watching the NCAA tournament game and 
just fell in love with college basketball and I uh, used to go to Bob Knight's basketball camp growing up. That was a <laughs> my dad sent me there for disciplinary reasons, and that was a good place to go if you were trying to get some discipline. But um, I went to Wake Forest University, uh, undergraduate, uh, had some good basketball teams back in the day. And then I've been in higher education fundraising most of my career and have spent the last 10 uh, here at Butler University. Really been blessed to be here at Butler. Was your dad in the military? He was not. It seemed like it. He was in the healthcare field, and we just uh, we just kept moving. We just... <laughs> like the gypsy family we just kept moving every two years do you have brothers and sisters i do i've got a brother who is actually a graduate of the university of kentucky and he lives in california and then i've got a sister uh, who lives out in boston so my poor mom in louisville has one on the west coast one right in the middle and then one on the east coast she doesn't <laughs> have them all together are you the oldest or where do you fall in that lineage yeah i, I, I am the oldest nice me too yeah Nice. So where was the place that you lived the longest during your teenage years? Uh, I would have been Michigan. Uh, that's where I went to high school outside of the Detroit area. So I was actually there for four years, which seemed like an eternity. And uh, thankfully, I got to spend my entire high school time at one school. So that was a blessing. Yeah, that's really key for uh, a high school student to be jumping around and having to make new social groups and friends. Right. That's Yeah. It was a interesting way to uh, grow up. I'll say that. Did you get pretty good though, being able to adapt and make new friends as you moved around? You know, I'd like to think so, and and actually, Ben, that's something that's really helped me in my career now. So I work again in in development, higher education development, which entails meeting a lot of different people, a lot of new people from all types of backgrounds and places, and. I felt that gave me a little bit of a hand up in terms of having that skill and being able to be able to talk shop with people from wherever they were from and acclimate to, you know, wherever I was traveling. And, and so I, I do think there was an advantage to that and, and being able to, to be a generalist, to talk about a lot of different things, a lot of different backgrounds, been to a lot of different places. So I, I definitely think that's helped me in my career. There was a post on LinkedIn that I remember seeing that it was asking about what you think the most important traits of a leader should be. And one of the things that I responded with was connectability, which is just, mm-hmm. I think, that trait that you're kind of talking about that's helped you later on in your career, but just trying to figure out ways that you can connect with people. How can you make friends and build relationships even if you vote differently or look differently or think differently with somebody? Yeah, I think the ability to develop rapport, you know, not just if you're in, in sales or what I do in terms of fundraising, but being able to connect with someone. And you're exactly right. I mean, this is probably the most divisive time that I've lived in, in terms of political discourse. But how can you find the commonalities? And I definitely think that background helped because I I learned a lot, but I also could look through the eyes maybe of someone, you know, who a little better who wasn't in my shoes, um, seeing how different people lived and grew up and differences in geography, politics, all of that good stuff. Because when you guys grew up, were you, like, how would you categorize your family in terms of the classes? Were you moving up class by class, move by move, or were you kind of in like a, a middle class or lower class or upper, like, where would you put yourself? Yeah, I, I would say middle class, maybe upper middle class, certainly not 
we certainly weren't wealthy, but we, we, we had enough. I think we were fortunate from that regard, but, um, you know, you live in places and I still now travel places, you know, I was in New York city last week for the big East tournament. And you, you realize how fortunate you are when you, when you get around the country and you see the circumstances of others who, who, uh, it's a tough time, you know, but we were definitely a middle class. Did you play sports growing up? Not well, uh, but I, I played them. Yeah, you know, I was um, I played football, basketball, baseball, but basketball again was my was my love. And despite my height, I was just sort of the consummate gym rat. I mean, I lived in the gyms in summer, going to camps, and so I I could shoot the ball pretty well. I like to say I'm I'm small, but I'm slow, but I could shoot the ball uh, pretty well. And so at Butler, we still have a a faculty staff game that we play two or three times a week. And I'm, even at my age, I'm, I'm still playing. And the, we measure wins by uh, not going to the hospital at the end of the game. If nobody gets injured, <laughs> then we all win. Hey, three and D never fades, right? That's right. That's right. <laughs> That's pretty cool. So then as you get to Wake Forest, had you moved away from home before? I mean, was that a hard transition for you? What was that like? Yeah, you know, I'd been to summer camps, but, you know, my folks were living in Michigan at the time and they, they were just on the cusp of divorcing. So, you know, there was some tension there, but it was it was an adjustment. You know, I don't know how many miles it is from Michigan to North Carolina, but it, it seemed like an eternity. And I think whenever you transition away from, you know, to college, that's an adjustment. But when I got there, I realized how far away it was from home. I'm like... <laughs> I'm on my own. Right. But it, uh, it was a great place to go to school, wonderful education, wonderful people. And I was really fortunate to see some great basketball when I was down there. How old were you when your parents divorced? Uh, 18. Okay. I was mine split up and eventually got divorced, but I was 13 going through a lot of that stuff. And that's a tough, that's another tough transition. Yeah, it is. It is. I, uh, you, you know, you definitely grow up quicker, I think, when you go through that. But it's probably for the best for everybody involved. Especially as the oldest, too. I mean, you're kind of thrust up into this leadership position, even if you're not ready for it. You've got younger siblings looking at you and mom's yeah. kind of looking at you to step up a little bit. And now you're like, I'm the man of the house, maybe, you know? Yeah, I definitely felt that and in, in having two younger siblings, one of whom is seven years younger. So I definitely felt quite a lot of responsibility at a young age. And I, I used to have friends say, man, why do you, why are you so responsible or take everything so seriously? And you kind of, again, I think you mature a little, you know, you mature quickly when you're in that situation and you're, you're having to take on the role of a leader early on. Do you ever think about how that shaped you and your career and just the diligence that you take to the way that you approach life? I think it definitely helped me in terms of being a leader in my profession, but also being a leader in, you know, my community. I've been very involved in my community here in Indianapolis in a lot of ways. I think one of the things that's helped me with is I don't want to say pressure because I look at there are a lot of other professions that have a lot more pressure than what I do, but, you know, we are tasked with raising, you know, big dollars for the university. 
you know, I think when you're in sales or fundraising and you're measured by metrics, there's always that end of the year. Okay. I got to hit my goal. That pressure, I think growing up, like I did moving around a lot, having to step up in terms of being a leader in my house at a young age, that to me was real pressure. And so then when I, I get to this, it's like, I can handle that. You know, it's, if, if that makes sense, it's like you kind of went through that crucible and this doesn't seem as stressful as, is kind of what I went through growing up. Yeah. I, it's almost like if you can make it through that, when it seems like the stakes will never be higher in terms of just family and, and I think the, the weight of that all, you know, like you're talking about deep relationships and you're talking about some heavy real shit. And then to be thrust into other things, it kind of helps keep it into perspective. Like, you know what, if I can make it through all that stuff, I'll find a way. Yeah, it definitely helped there. I think I definitely gained confidence coming through that. And then I think also it gave me a bit of not being afraid to fail. You know, put everything in perspective that even with the books that I've written, taking some chances, it's going to be okay. You know, this isn't life or death. We'll get into the book in a little bit in the back half of this interview, but taking risk is a big part of the Butler way. So it seems like you're kind of the perfect person to have written that book. But before we get into that, I just want to stick with these college years for a minute. So what were you studying in Wake Forest? I was a psychology major, actually. I was the same. This tells you how old I am. I was in the same class as Tim Duncan at Wake Forest, (laughs) who was also a psychology major. And I I, I had classes with him. And the amazing thing, you know, he's, he was one of the last real superstars that stayed four years in college. And I remember my senior year, he was in a class of mine at 8 a.m. And he never missed a class. And I was thinking, this guy, he could have gone pro two years ago. It, it just was really impressive to me. But I, I studied psychology partly because I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I found it interesting. And I thought this is... I'd always been interested in people and how they thought. And, and ironically, it's played a big role with what I've done in my career. Because again, in the sales field, there's a lot of psychology that goes into it. Yeah. Trying to figure out people, trying to figure out their their motives, how they how money affects them. So I, I really enjoyed that that experience being a psychology major. I do think it's a really it's it's a I don't know if soft skill is the right way to put it, but when you think about sales or marketing or what you're doing, you're figuring out again ways to connect with people. And the reason that I studied, I was journalism and sociology at UK, and part of the reason was yeah you know, I didn't get into journalism until later. But at first I was doing sociology because I was like, after my parents' divorce. I was trying to make sense of the world. I was like, I need to figure out it just just life in general, you know? So I think taking those classes was great and then different than psychology, but still, I mean, you're you're learning so much about people and society and groups and what motivates people and then having those skills be almost the foundation of everything that I've done since then has been such a critical 
factor for me. So it's cool to hear that you also went through psychology and that's something that you still use to this day. Yeah, I wouldn't have traded. You know, at the time I had a lot of people, I think my dad included saying, what are you going to do with this? (laughs) What are you going to do with this major? (laughs) But I really have relied on it heavily. You talk about the soft skills. I, on occasion, I'll speak to a class here at Butler or mentor a student. And I, I really emphasize those, not to say that the, you know, the technical components of your education, be it if you're a business major, finance or accounting, they're, they're certainly important, but how you, how you relate to people and how you deal with them. And I've got two young daughters and I worry about these, you know, these phones and, and iPads. And I still think there's always going to be a place to be able to connect with people interpersonally. Um, you know, and it, it again, I'm, I, I always say I'm not a rocket scientist, but those simple things, remembering people's names, remembering people's birthdays, following up, looking someone in the eye when you're talking to them, all those, all those things have allowed me to make a living. And uh, I highly encourage, you know, our students to, to pay attention to them. Yeah, they can have the metaverse. We'll be down here having real conversations with real people. Right, right. <laughs> So your education didn't stop at Wake Forest. You graduated, and did you, by the way, did you do any uh, clubs, fraternities, anything like that? I was a, in a fraternity, which probably inhibited my grades a little bit. But uh, <laughs> I was in a fraternity, played intramural sports. Yeah, you know, I did a lot of volunteer community service work. So I I kept myself pretty busy during college. What was the fraternity? Alpha Sigma Phi. Okay. I don't know if they have one at UK. They're kind of our claim to fame was that Arnold Palmer, a Wake Forest graduate, was, was also an Alpha Sig. So nice. Yeah, we claimed him. He ever come back for any parties? He didn't, though. He on occasion would come back for a football game when when we played Louisville in the Orange Bowl in yeah. 2007. One of the cool things was that he and uh, Muhammad Ali were the honorary captains of the respective teams. Pretty cool moment. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That was one of the last, I feel like that was one of the last things that Ali did before he... I think it was, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. Okay, so you graduate from Wake Forest. Also, totally gloss over the fact that you mentioned that Tim Duncan story. That's really cool. And then... You know the other the other story, if I have time here? Yeah. He was so lightly recruited. He had two scholarship offers. You know, he came from the Virgin Islands and nobody knew about him because he didn't go to these AAU camps or the Nike camps. And he arrived on campus and he was not, not even the most heralded recruit of three recruits in his class. (laughs) And I think my first day I saw him, this really skinny, tall kid, you knew he was going to be a basketball player, but it's just incredible to think about that day to think that he's in most polls, he's regarded as one of the top 10 NBA players of all time, or at least top 15, 20, For sure. just phenomenal rise. And I don't think he's changed a lot as a person. He kept his humility, never got a big ego, never really got in trouble. Truly one of the amazing stories I think about in terms of athletics and, and was fortunate to spend a little bit of time around them. Could also tying your book into this as well, maybe make the case that he's an underdog in some senses, right? You know, the other one I compare it to is Steph Curry. 
who's going to be in the new book, I'm not sure he had any major scholarship offers coming out of college, you know, Davidson. and He may be the ultimate underdog story, but I still love it because I pay attention to recruiting, not maybe as, as much as others, but there's still always going to be the case. And you're going to see it in this NCAA tournament about Loyola Chicago as well, where you have these great players who they weren't McDonald's All-Americans. They weren't in the top 50 or the top 100. And I think that's one of the beautiful things about college basketball. But, you know, I think about Curry and Duncan, you'd be hard-pressed to find stories like theirs and how they've <laughs> storybook, really. Yeah. So after graduation, you ended up going and continuing your education. Was that an immediate decision or did you start working after you graduated undergrad? I really did both. I, I went to, don't hold it against me, uh, IU for my graduate degree. <laughs> and I worked in their athletic department while getting a master's in kinesiology, which is really sports management. That would have been when Bob Knight was there or no? His last couple years. I was there his last two years. Actually. Oh, holy shit. So yeah. The the whole uh, read thing and all that goes down when you're there then. Yeah. I mean, you know, you didn't really, obviously, unless you were in that practice, you wouldn't have seen it. But uh, yeah, I was right up there. I graduated right before his firing. Wow. Wow. But I worked in the athletic department. So there'd be occasions where I'd see him and on occasion watch practice, that type of thing. So I was I wasn't deeply tied into the program, but I was at Assembly Hall most days when I was a student there. Well, yeah, I mean, you're in the building, you know, even just to be with proximity and access to a team like that and a dynasty. I mean, you know, whether people can legislate if the IU was a dynasty or not, but just I'd say that's a pretty, just in terms of college coaching, the success that he had, a dynastic type of a run, you know, like a Greece or a Romans or and then to see it come no doubt. down. You know, I, I would argue they were a dynasty. And I think one of the lessons, and we touch upon it in the new book, is that these things don't always last forever. You know, I mean, I think programs like Kentucky and Kansas and Duke and North Carolina have sustained, but one coaching change, another coaching change can really change the trajectory of a program. You're probably too young to remember, but a lot of, DePaul up in Chicago was a really good program in the 70s and the 80s, early 80s. And then Ray Meyer, their coach, retired. And they've really gone off the grid for almost 40 years. But, yeah. um, you know, I would say IU was, I think they're on their way back early, like Mike Woods and their new coach. But, yeah, I, I would say rambling a bit here. But I, I think under Bob Knight, they were a dynasty. That's why we block off a couple hours for these things so we can, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, and we're seeing that now with Louisville. I mean, Rick yeah. P goes away, and I, to be honest with you, I mean, between everything that they've got going on from, I mean, it's almost at every level that they're trying to figure out their stuff, and it seems like it might be a while before somebody steps in and, and they get back to where they think that they should be. Yeah, they have a lot of challenges right now, and you throw in a coaching change, potential NCAA sanctions, how that re- affects recruiting, how that it, it can be a snowball effect, you know, Ben. And, you know, it'll be interesting to see 
how they come back. They certainly have the resources in place. You have a great fan base, great city, but yeah, I'll be interested to see how they get back on track after a couple, well, after a really tough decade, really, to be honest with you. And it's cool to talk to you about these things because we're jumping a little bit ahead here, but you really take programs and trends in college basketball and break that down. I think what you've done with your book, The Cinderella Strategy, The Game Plan Behind Butler University's Rise to Prominence, is looking at the micro and macro trends that led to what culminated in those back-to-back championship runs, but it's cool to get your perspective on something as you're seeing it play out and unfold with Louisville, which has felt like it's been brewing for a while and still isn't over. Yeah, I think, you know, Ben, what people see are the wins and the losses, the players on the bench, the coach on the bench, the NCAA tournaments, the games. What they don't see and what they really can't see is everything that's the foundation or lack of foundation with the program. And the new book goes into even greater detail in terms of these foundational elements, culture, integrity, continuity and leadership, values, mission, the type of players that you bring in, character, adherence to rules. I mean, all of those things are really the foundation. When that foundation starts to crumble, you can really have problems, be it internally. You know, you look at LSU, you look at Will Wade this past weekend. Mm-hmm. And so again, that the I've been really lucky to be here at Butler where I think we've had a really strong foundation and then the four schools that we've studied over the past year, Gonzaga, Davidson, Loyola, Chicago, Villanova, really strong foundation, you know, and, and we got, I guess, fortunate that all of them are going to the tournament <laughs> that, that yeah. turned out pretty well for us. And one of them is probably the odds on favorite, but it's not just luck that, that these programs, you know, we feel have sustained themselves. It's, it's that foundation of things that, that a lot of people don't see. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen in some of the other interviews that you always like plugging up Gonzaga a lot, the Bulldogs. I, you know, I have such respect for that program. And I think one of the neat stories in the book, which even I think diehard college basketball fans don't realize is they were on the brink of closing as a university. In the early 1990s, Gonzaga, you know, we've interviewed a a bunch of people who really said the university was in deep financial trouble. And there was talk that they could have closed their doors. And you have, and yeah, you had a good academic school, but you really have a strong case that Gonzaga basketball saved that university. But I look at what they've done over time, right? This is going on 25 plus years where they've been really good. And you have other programs like a George Mason or Loyola Marymount that had these that one shiny moment, but haven't been able to sustain that continuity. Yeah. So that's one of the things that that Jerry, my co-author, and I are really fascinated with is how do you sustain it? We'll answer that question in just a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I sometimes bounce around, and so I, I, I ahead too. Yeah, fine. no, it's great. I want to bounce back to just chronologically wrapping up from getting from graduating Indiana and then eventually getting to where you are now, what were the next couple of chapters throughout your life that led you from there to here? Yeah. So, you know, I, I really had a, a dream of working in athletics, higher education, and then nine 11 hit 
9-11 had a big impact for me. And at the time, ironically, I was living in Louisville. I had some family there. And I said, I, I really feel like I need to give back. I want to do something that gives back to my community. I just felt I needed to do something. And so I ended up working for a, a city councilman there in Louisville, a great guy by the name of Kevin Kramer. Worked for him for five years. And then I felt life in politics is tricky because if you're, <laughs> your boss is on a, on a you know, Gets, doesn't get reelected, you could be in, in trouble. And I, that was the time I knew I wanted to take that step to really a career in, in higher education. And I did that. I was development director for three years for the business school there at UofL. And then I had the opportunity that I did at Butler. I wanted to get back to a smaller school. Butler reminded me of Wake Forest, which is where I went. And Butler was just coming off of the two final four rooms. And I could, it sounds like hindsight now, but I could see how much potential was there because of the momentum of those two final fours, which ultimately became really the genesis of the book that we wrote. But I could see the potential in terms of fundraising and applications, and they needed to build new facilities, and they needed to look at moving to a, a conference like the Big East. And I just said, boy, this would be exciting to jump into this. And, and so I took the job and I just started my 10th year and I've loved every aspect of it. I've been really blessed. My mom wasn't real happy that I, that we moved because I took her grandchildren away, but I've really loved what we've been able to do here at Butler, which again was the, the motivation and the genesis of the first book that we did. I mean, Indy is not too far from Louisville, so. I know. I, I, I remind her of that quite frequently. <laughs> so you come to Butler, you said a couple of years after those those championship runs? Basically right after, you know, basically right after. And, and we were ramping up. The university knew that they had to take advantage of it, you know, that you can't wait. You have all that momentum. You have that, all that attention. You have your trustees fired up, your alumni fired up. And we had a really fortuitous hire in that our new president came from Villanova. He was the dean of the business school at Villanova, and Villanova obviously has been a model of how to do that. And he came in, he said, we can't wait around. And he had a great quote where he said, you either go big or you go home. And so right away, we started cranking on. The biggest thing we, we did initially was Hinkle Fieldhouse. I don't know if you've ever been, but an amazing facility, but was very outdated. And we started a $35 million campaign immediately. And so... That was the project that I dove into and it was a dream for me being a basketball junkie to yeah. uh, work on raising money for that, but dove right in and haven't had a day where I've sat around and been bored since. I mean, we've really been busy with what we've done here. A lot of different ways to go from this. So for people that don't know, Hinkle Fieldhouse is famous. Could you tell us why it's famous? Well, there are a couple of reasons. Probably many people know that the final scenes from the movie Hoosiers were filmed there, but Hinkle was built in 1928. So it's coming up actually six years away from its 100th anniversary. And it's just a, if you appreciate classic old historic gymnasiums, to me, it's, it's the Mecca for that. But um, for the longest time hosted Indiana State tournaments. There have been 
so many famous players that have played in there. And the first tournament ever played in 1928, there was a guard for uh, Martinsville High School by the name of John Wooden uh, who mm. played there. But, you know, Oscar Robertson, you had the famous Milan beating Muncie Central, which was the inspiration for the movie Hoosiers. Rick Mount, uh, you know, the list goes on and on of great players. Then there are other avenues as well. There's seven different presidents who have spoken in Hinkle. It was used for barracks during World War II for soldiers. Hmm. Jesse Owens, the great sprinter, set a record in there. So there's just so much history. But we really worked hard in the campaign to renovate it to maintain that history and yet put the bells and whistles in in terms of locker rooms and weight rooms and those type of things that we needed. And then when you got there, was Brad Stevens in his last year or had he already he was, left? He was in his last year. So I only okay. got one year of seeing the genius in action, but that was, um, <laughs> it was, I marveled at his skill, his skill set. It was pretty wild going back and preparing for this. I looked at, and I have the brackets filled up from Butler's runs and they actually on, I think it's NCAA.com. They have the full hour and 30 minute YouTube clips where you can watch both those games. So I actually, we're jumping really ahead here, but I actually went back and watched Gordon Hayward shot rim out both of them. And just seeing Brad Stevens on the sideline and how young he looks is, it makes me feel old. And I, I don't know, man, it's, it's wild. He still looks young. I think he's 45 <laughs> now, but yeah, I mean, it's crazy. He was 33 at the time. I mean, he was really young. In just two magical years. I, I still watch that game and hope that the Hayward shot goes in this time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when the new president comes in, he was really the one that you talk about in your book being the one that's like, all right, let's capitalize on this because it seemed like the president before him was a little bit more focused on just the the academic side of it, but it seemed like once this president came in, this was a big piece for what ends up becoming where Butler is now. Yeah, we have a section in the book that talks about the right president at the right time. So in the late 1980s, Jeff Bannister was the president who really deserves a lot of the credit for saying, because the Butler program had been dormant for a long time. It had not made the NCAA tournament since 1962. And in 1989, Jeff Bannister comes in and he didn't know anything about basketball. He was a geographer by trade. He was from New Zealand, actually. And he said, you know, we're in Indiana. Basketball is important. You have history with Tony Hinkle back in the day. And you've got this wonderful resource in Hinkle Fieldhouse. Why don't we put more resources in men's basketball? At the same time, they hired Barry Collier as head coach. And they slowly started building. Well, after Bannister was Bobby Fong who, wonderful president, wonderful man, would not necessarily say he was an athletics-heavy president. He, yeah. When the athletic department would come for more money, he would, he would give a polite no. You know, you <laughs> need to be self-sustaining. So, But then Jim Danko comes along from Villanova, and he was the perfect president for that time because he really knew how to leverage athletic success, had been at Villanova, and just was really aggressive from the onset in terms of enhancing the human capital that was needed, you know, beefing up marketing, fundraising, and really gets the credit for helping negotiate our moves. So we were in the, we were in the Horizon League, then we went to the Atlantic 10 for one year, 
and then to the Big East. So we were in three different conferences in three years, but he was just the right president, Ben, at the right time. He was really assertive and, and had seen how this worked well at Villanova. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, jumping back to... Well, I mean, we could talk about conference realignment and just the entire <laughs> landscape. That's, of, a whole, the, that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll get you back on maybe next year yeah. or something. Hopefully we're still in the Big East, yeah. But just to be able to steward that ship, but also to come in and and like we talked about a little bit earlier, just the fact that what we're seeing in 2010 and 11 is the culmination of all of these things that have been building this foundation, the the Butler way and everything kind of leading up to that. That's exactly right. You know, sometimes fans will see, and I'm sure we'll see one this year, like we did Oral Roberts last year. They'll say, they'll see this team that gets to the sweet 16 and they'll think Boy, lightning struck and they were lucky and, what they don't see is all the years that it takes to build a program, to build a culture. And again, it, it was decades in the making of Butler building a program, getting back to those back-to-back final fours. I mean, again, they made the tournament in 1997, but again, had not been for 35 years. Yeah. And that's a, that is another real theme in the book is patience. And unfortunately, I think we see less and less of that. You've already seen it right in the last couple of days where coaches, I mean, I don't, I don't know how many coaches I've seen in the last couple of days that they've announced that the school's parting ways with. And it really took patience on Butler's part to build that program, to build the culture around it as well. Earlier, you held up your iPhone and referenced to something. You probably hold it up again just for that, just the culture that we live in today, just being everything instant, you know, Twitter and TikTok and Amazon yep. Prime. It's at your door the next day, and it's crazy. That's exactly right, and it does translate into collegiate athletics. You see this instant wanting to win. New coach comes in, and people immediately want that coach to go to the NCAA tournament. In most cases, it doesn't work that way. It takes patience. I mean, we tell the story, and you're, you're probably aware of it, of Mike Krzyzewski. You know, his first three years at Duke were not good. Not good at all. And a lot of the boosters wanted him out. And the athletic director took a chance, and he renewed Krzyzewski's contract when almost no one around the Duke community wanted that to happen. And I would argue if it were this day and age, he would not have gotten a renewed contract. Yeah. And who who knows the other coaches that may have been let go early that had they given a little bit more time would have been successful. But you're right. I mean, we live in a day and age where people want instant everything. <laughs> yeah. I usually will say when it comes to football or basketball about I'd like to see somebody for at least three years, let them get a few recruiting classes in, but even three years to think about as many coaches that were at schools for 10, 15 years and no one even questioned it. And just to jump back quickly to what you said about one of the reasons that you were getting out of politics, you know, it's so 
it's so similar to college coaching because if you're on a staff and the coach gets fired, if you guys don't have a good season, you're out of job. Same thing if you're riding on a team politically and then the election doesn't go your way, you're finding a new campaign, you're jumping ship midway through. I mean, it's it can get kind of crazy. It's a high risk, high reward industry. You know, and people talk about the salaries that coaches make, but particularly I don't know actually the average tenure of a college coach, but I mean, in the NBA, it's probably two and a half years, maybe three. There's just no, I mean, imagine if we had that continuity with companies in the U S I mean, I think we'd, we'd really be struggling, but it's, it's a hard, hard industry. And, you know, from my vantage point, I've been really lucky to get to know players here personally, coaches, they're human beings, you know, and I think on Twitter, we look at them as, objects or they're just the coach of a team but they're human beings at the end of the day yeah and given the time to set some roots down maybe they do end up turning it around you know and and sometimes it's not even the most frustrating thing i think is (laughs) getting sidetracked here but like sometimes it's not even within their control because they're so tied up with maybe they're at a school that values academics way more than athletics. Maybe they're fighting for those budgets and they just don't really have the support and they're doing the best they can. But it's almost like if you get fired from a high-profile job and you're at a major D1 program, then you've got to go down this rabbit hole of either going to be an assistant on somebody else's staff or going and almost doing like a um I mean with college football you see all these coaches go and like work for Nick Saban for a year and become an analyst and then yeah so it's it's almost like a PR campaign at that point you know take the example of Chris Mack right really good coach and he had a phenomenal thing going at Xavier you know they were making the tournament every year he was getting compensated well and I don't blame him, you know, if he wanted to leave and take the Louisville job, his wife's from Louisville, I understand that. But to me, that was an example of the grass isn't always greener, right? You know, you, you walked into a tough situation where Louisville was at at the time, replacing really a, a legend. So you have one scenario where a coach is, you know, let go and their career trajectory changes, but you have another scenario where a coach jumps Maybe for the money, maybe for resu- maybe for better resources, maybe for other reasons, but it doesn't work out. And I'm sure he's going to land on his feet. But that's another dynamic too. I think is the grass is not always greener. And Brad Stevens is an example of that. I mean, he passed up a ton of good college opportunities while he was at Butler. I mean, a ton of them. And you know, ultimately at the end of the day, he he did decide to leave, but for the Boston Celtics, right? But he had, he'd stayed at Butler for 13 years. Very easy for a coach to leave two or three years in when they get a big offer. Very easy for them to leave. And, and at Porter Moser is another one. We cover in the, the new book with Loyola. Now, he did again leave for Oklahoma, but passed up a number of jobs in the process. And probably the ultimate one, Ben, is, is Mark Few. I mean, Mark Few, and this is pretty public record, Kentucky, Indiana, UCLA, Oregon, all came after Mark Few, a couple of them on more than one occasion. Yeah. So if you, if you said back in 1999 when Gonzaga, no one had heard of him, if ultimately the Gonzaga coach would 
pass over those jobs, you would have thought they were insane. <laughs> but look at Mark Fuse built now. He's arguably built a, a top five, top seven program in the country. So the continuity, uh, all of that is, is fascinating and is, is a big part of both of these books. Three places I want to go there, two of them quickly, and then one where I'll kick it back to you. One, if Few knows what he's doing, which he obviously does, he should never leave. The schedule that they play, he's busting teams by 40 all the time, so yep. he should never leave. Well, he'll um, never leave for a lot of reasons, but yeah, he will never leave Gonzaga. <laughs> two, it seems like Louisville picked the wrong guy out of Cincinnati because Mick Cronin ends up going to UCLA, and they're, I, I honestly am... I got to watch them a lot, just being up late and watching them, yeah. and I think they're really good. I think they're really good. So Yeah, I mean, he found a, a unique situation, and that's another one where the fan base was not real happy with that hire. I think they had struck out with a couple of big names, and you never know. You never know. But I, I do think Mac had a much more difficult situation that he was coming into, although Cronin wasn't easy either. I mean, he was following – you know, Steve Alford had gone to four Sweet 16s there, and the fans were still very unhappy with him. Yeah. You know, the expectations are tough, you know, for, for programs like these. It makes it so difficult because that's where that impatience leads to. And I think a lot of times, too, <laughs> no fan base ever wants to be realistic with their expectations and the way that they see themselves. And it's it's very like a microcosm of just people in general, I think. But... um but it's it's just funny because because now you look at Mac and it's so it's it's such a delicate thing to be a coach going through those because if you take one wrong turn then it's almost like what you have to do in order to get back to that conversation where you're up for the jobs i mean Mac will land on his feet i think he's a good coach that got dealt a shitty hand at Louisville i mean there's just but he'll he'll probably have to go to a smaller D1 program in order to get back into the conversation of if a, a Michigan State or an Indiana or one of these big schools were to open up in the next five or six years? It is hard. It seems like you get one shot at Broadway, and then if you don't do well, you're trying to climb the ladder again. Brad Stevens' predecessor was a guy named Todd Licklider, who did a tremendous job here, and then he decided to go to Iowa which just didn't work out. He was there, I believe, three years, didn't work out. And it's been a long climb back for him. He's now the head coach at Evansville, but he took time off. And Archie Miller is another one, right? Where does he Where does he go from here? Right. Sean Miller, where does he go from here? So it's tough. If, if it doesn't work out for you on the big stage, it can be a long climb back. Maybe a jail cell for Sean Miller. I'm not sure. He... he, he... <laughs> I'm not going to comment on that one. But. Yeah. Uh, getting back to Brad Stevens, you know, looking at and going back and looking at those years, I honestly expected him to have gone to the Celtics right after those final fours. He actually ended up staying a couple more years, which was surprised me, just not remembering that, you know? He was happy, you know, and that's one thing we, again, we talk about in the new book is, Jim Valvano once said, don't mess with happy. And that's why Brad Stevens, I know even when I was there, UCLA, Illinois, I, I know approached him. He's an Indiana guy. He had family in Indiana, but he really loved Butler. I mean, at the, at the end of the day, 
He was a basketball junkie. He loved coming to Hinkle Fieldhouse every day. He really enjoyed it. So I think it took an almost impossible job to turn down, like being the head coach of the Boston Celtics. And one thing I don't think a lot of people knew is he was really intrigued at coaching in the NBA. I think a lot of people were surprised at that, but it took this kind of mega offer for him to ultimately leave Butler. Yeah. But again, I think he was happy. You know, he was happy. Well, and then can we talk a little bit about why he was happy? Like what contributed to that? Because a lot of that is just finally being at a place where you say, all the stuff that we were talking about doing, all these changes, all the times that we were, you know, you talk a little bit about that relationship between faculty and the school and trying to convince some of the people that maybe weren't on board that these changes were needed, that they were, the things that they were asking for were warranted. And then he's finally sitting on this culture that he's built and cultivated and it's paying off. Yeah. And I'll brag a bit, bit about Butler and I, I, I'm certainly no Brad Stevens, but I compare my own journey a bit to his in terms of it's a great place here. The, the people are tremendous, beautiful campus. It's a small school. I think there is value. We're not the only ones, but there's a really good balance of emphasis on a- academics and athletics here. You know, and then again, if you love basketball, you love you know, Kentucky, Indiana, North Carolina to me are the the ultimate states to be in. You're in a great basketball place here. You have Hinkle Fieldhouse, which is one of a kind. And I I think for some of us, it's still the challenge. You know, Butler, we've had success, but we're still, we're still building. You know, we're still treading water a little bit in the Big East. So there's that challenge to want to continue to do better. We're, We're not a blue blood. You know, we're, we're still pushing to get better and but at the end of the day, the culture here, the Butler way, which has been a big part of Butler's culture, it's a wonderful place to be, and it's a tough place to leave, to be honest with you, in my perspective. So that's a big part of the first part of the book is the Butler way and just going through that. And I think what's cool about it, too, is even though we're talking about a basketball team, these are trends, these are elements of that make any organization or culture successful. So can you... Talk to me a little bit about the Butler way and some of those key elements that make the Butler way what it is. Yeah. I mean, the, the foundation of the Butler way actually started way back when we had Tony Hinkle. If you're not familiar with Tony Hinkle, he was, this will never happen in this day and age again, but he was the basketball coach, football coach, baseball coach, and athletic director here <laughs> for the good part of 50 years, which is probably why Hinkle Fieldhouse is named after him. But these Elements of humility, passion, service above self, unity. These really became known of what we now call the Butler way. And it was a culture that has really been embedded in the basketball program, but at the university as well. And again, when we talked about what are the foundations that are behind success, be it a company, a not-for-profit, a sports program, at the heart of the Butler program, if you've watched those teams play, they were unselfish. They were passionate. They played hard. That was the crux of those teams. It really was. And so the Butler way has been a huge piece of the success here of this program. And it bleeds into other things like recruiting, right? You know, talk about it all the time. You want to get good players, but you've got to get players that fit the culture. 
Mm-hmm. You know, and we're again, we're not the only school, but the, the student athlete here, the term really rings true is our student athletes are expected to go to class. One of the stories that really got a lot of publicity fortuitously, you know, the 2010 game was played here in Indianapolis. The Butler players went to class the day of the national championship. game, <laughs> And that just, that got worldwide attention and added on to this ideal of the Butler way, but that's the core of it. But it's been a really important part of what we've done here at Butler. How much of what you do, I mean, I, I would, I could argue that a lot of what you do is storytelling, you know, is obviously through the books, but just in what you're doing in securing these principal gifts and getting people to give the school money, you're telling the story and you're using other stories like that in order to help spread that message and get people to buy in, right? It's a very astute point. Storytelling is huge with what I do. And I think having a program with integrity really has helped what I do in terms of we've had, we've had a lot of major gifts then come through the last decade from people who didn't go to Butler, but they have had great respect for what Butler stands for. And quite honestly, a time where there's still a lot of impropriety in the sport. You've got programs right now under NCAA investigation. You've got coaches that are under NCAA investigation. So telling these stories, and then you layer that on with something like the Butler Way, I've been re- I'm really lucky to be at a place like this, that you yeah. can look somebody in the eye, tell them you're doing it with integrity, telling them that, yes, we want to win games, but we also want our players going to class. We want them graduating. We want to prepare them for their, their post-playing careers has been very, very instrumental in some of the big gifts we've got. Some of the small ones, too. Well, especially now, we talked about conference realignment. We just brushed on it. But just even just this notion of free agency and the the whole one-and-done thing that Cal's made so popular. And you see a lot of people that look at the way that college sports are done, and it's totally different. You know, I'm thinking people like 40 and up. It was never like that, you know, for I'm I'll be 30 this year. So I come from just that. I don't know, just wherever it switched, it was in between me and and my parents. And it's more of a business. It's now we've got the NIL legislation and then conference realignment. So I think I could see why somebody would want to buy in or identify with with the Butler way with like hey no we're going to stick with this team and we're going to build something and then another part of the book that you talk a lot about and write about is just the fact that a lot of the coaches are plucked from within you know it's like elevating the own people that come through the program yeah yeah you know the landscape is really changing quickly you have the transfer portal which is impacting all programs you do have the one and done Element, you have NIL, you do have the conference realignments that seem to seem there are constant changes with that. And we're affected by that too. I mean, I, I wish we could say we're, we had all the stability, but we're living through the change now. Of how do we manage NIL? And you have a lot of generational folks who don't like that or don't agree with it, but that's the reality that we're living in. We've, we benefited from transfers. 
we don't lose a ton, but it's a different age. It's certainly a different age when I grew up, you know, I take the Duke program when I, when I was growing up, they were like, that's the model, you know, they win big and their players stay for four years and they graduate, you know, they've changed their model as well. So it seems that it's a really challenging time in, in college basketball and college athletics in general. Yeah. And especially because I think about the first Butler team that went to the championship, you got Gordon Hayward, you've got Matt Howard and Shelvin Mack. Two of those guys went to the NBA. Gordon Hayward's still a baller. Yep. And, yep. and to think that now the way that college sports is run, if one of those guys on a smaller program is offered money from a bigger program, well, then the guy that just developed over three or four years is getting plucked because they see them, you know, they, they kind of get those Scrooge McDuck dollar signs in their eyes. It's a great point. Matt Howard's a really good friend of mine, and I actually talked to him about this not all that long ago, that in this era, he has a good first, second year. And even when he started, Butler was not where it is now in terms of being in the Big East and having the no variety is now. He could have gone to a Kansas. He could have gone to an Indiana or a bigger place, which seems to be happening more and more, which personally I I find troubling because a coach and a university invest in a, in a player. And there's certainly circumstances where I understand a player leaving, but in others, it seems like they're playing for that smaller school. And then they're looking for a, a venue that's got bigger lights on it. So it, it may have been different. Although I, again, I know the character of a Matt Howard, I still think he stays right. But it's that dynamic, really good point of yours is, is changing. Kentucky's team this year, Kellen Grady, I think he was a Davidson guy. They brought yeah, he in was. Mintz last year. He had come in mm-hmm. from a smaller school. I can't remember uh, where. But yeah. Yeah. So, and not that those are the tiniest of schools, but you think about a guy who's a stud at a Villanova or a Creighton or Marquette and has a couple of good years and then they get that offer and just even maybe even if they don't even jump just that temptation and that that route and that model that we're in now is just totally different than even 10 years ago yeah Kellen Grady is a great person I've got a friend of mine who's close to him and Davidson's an amazing program Uh, they're my upset special this week by the way they've had a tremendous year now, if you think about a Kellen Grady, though, who's trying to get NBA attention, the the bottom line is he's going to be on national TV a lot more playing for Kentucky than Davidson. Doesn't mean one school is better than the other, but if, if you're in his shoes and you're trying to get an NBA look, you're tempted to go, right? And he had yeah. that opportunity. Yeah. And I think it speaks also to just the way that college sports is marketed. So tying this back into the Butler program and the success of what you've seen, and maybe you can run through some of those numbers because they're pretty astronomical, just the impact of those two years, it's a billion dollars, right? It was, yeah. So there was actually a public relations firm that, put a valuation on what those two 
final fours meant for Butler. And they came up with 1.2 billion with a B <laughs> dollars. And I, there was a second study that came up with, I think around a billion. I don't know how they put all the metrics into it, but I mean, I've seen my, my wife's uncle lives in Germany and he wasn't a big basketball fan and he knows about Butler now. I mean, we have stories in the book of a faculty member here being stuck at an airport in France and wearing a Butler sweatshirt and people coming up to her. And, you know, that's worldwide attention. You looked at last year, I think it was, was it Abilene Christian who beat Texas? I think it was Abilene Christian. And they said, and I don't know how they come up with those numbers, but that one win was worth a hundred million dollars in publicity. Jeez. But yeah, they, it was, they valued it at more than a billion, which is pretty hard to believe. And I mean, think about if they had won all the merchandise that gets sold after that. I mean, the commemorative stuff, even 10 years later, like, hey, 10 years ago, we won the championship by this 10th year anniversary. I mean, the dividends that that kind of a thing pays, I mean, a billion's nothing to scoff at, but just, it's just trying to wrap your head around the fact that it's, it's so big and the the ecosystem that that money can bring in and affect is just, it's mind-blowing, to be honest. I mean, there's very few vehicles in sports like the NCAA tournament. I mean, it's always a joke about it's the least productive environment in companies this week and all the people that go out to Vegas. and But, you know, he certainly wish Butler had won that game. But I've seen a couple times this year where the – Butler-Duke games being rerun. I think maybe it's because it's Krzyzewski's last year. But people, that's still on like ESPN, right, or CBS or wherever they're playing it. 12 years later, that that's still in front of a lot of eyeballs, even though they didn't win the game. Right. The NCAA tournament, I mean, you look at the, just the billions that brings in, maybe it's not that surprising that that number was put on on Butler's two back-to-back Final Fours. It helps that, that that game was, I mean, probably one of the better championships that we've had for sure. So That and it's in Indianapolis and the story, you know, if you know the story of Mile and Muncie Central, which became the inspiration for Hoosiers, there were a lot of similarities. It helped that Duke was the opponent, right? That it was a David Goliath game. And it was a yeah. well-played game that came down to a last shot and, you had Mike Krzyzewski, and then you had this up-and-coming coach who looked like he was 20. You had all <laughs> these storylines happening that made it, I think, even more – it accentuated the game even more than, than normal. So those were right before you got to the school, right? Okay. So I have the brackets pulled up. I could run through those teams, but were you – was there a connection that you had to the school before you got there, or were you just kind of following along and getting swept away with the Cinderella story as well? Yeah, probably the latter. I mean, I had always I had known about where Butler was for a long time, and I did get caught up like everybody else in watching the Final Fours. But I mentioned this in the, the lead-in to that book. I was at Buckhead's right there on Bardstown Road. Hopefully it's still there. I was like eating there. And I was with my wife, and this was 2011. So this was the second run, and they were playing Florida in the regional final. Really good Florida team. And the game was in overtime, and 
we had a really young daughter at the time. So it was one of those rare occasions where you're with your wife and you're, but I'm, I'm keeping my eye on the TV and they beat Florida. And I turned to her and I said, that is one of the greatest accomplishments in sports I've ever seen for a school that small. You know how hard it is to go to back-to-back final fours. I mean, as good as Purdue, Indiana, Notre Dame have been in the state, they've never gone to back-to-back final fours. And I, I was just blown away. And then I was up here a few months later, I took my daughter to the children's museum here and I drove around the campus and we snuck into Hinkle and I was like, gosh, this would be a great place to be. And, and a position opened up, submitted my resume and 10 years later, I'm here. Nice. But um, I, I had gotten swept away in the story like everybody else. It was a magical, magical tale. And I think the other difference with Butler was going to that second final four. And the, the odds were so much against them doing that. I mean, they were, they were really struggling in February. They were looking like they weren't going to make the tournament. But you think about the other great Cinderella runs, like George Mason or Florida Gulf Coast or VCU, the difference for Butler is that back-to-back Final Four was just, like, remarkable. Yeah, and they lost – Gordon Hayward, he was like the right. one piece that didn't come back, right? Right. They lost Gordon Hayward, who NBA star. Yeah, unbelievable. Yeah. Unbelievable story. What do you think makes a great underdog story? What is it about the Cinderella story that just captivates us that we're just like, I'm a sucker for this. Give me more of it. I just think that's the beauty of the NCAA tournament. Professional sports, it's generally a best of seven, a best of five. I think a lot of us relate to that in a way, you know, that unless we're a LeBron James or Michael Jordan or Larry Bird, a lot of us don't have this incredible skill, this incredible talent. And we, we like to see that underdog succeed. We like to see that small school. I think we're, I think there's a reason why Hoosiers is ranked as the greatest sports movie of all time, because it's the great underdog story. Yeah. And, the beauty of the NCAA tournament, and I hope we see some of those this week, is is that just unexpected surprise where you never think this team can beat the other team, and it happens. But I think I think we personalize that sometimes in thinking about our own dreams, about overcoming our own limitation and succeeding. Who can't identify with an underdog story, you know? Raise your hand if you've never been counted out or doubted. It's a room full of people without their hands up, you know? I think the other thing, too, is one of the beauties, going back to what we talked about with recruiting, is, you know, take like a Loyal of Chicago back in 2018. No Big Ten team was recruiting those guys. And there's that kind of chip on the shoulder mentality of beating teams where they have the McDonald's All-Americans or these high-profile players. I think there's something to that as well. Absolutely. And then tying it back to Stevens, you talk a little bit in the book about just painting this picture of him before he became the head coach, about just where he was at in life. And I yeah. mean, again, just another consummate underdog. That's one of my favorite stories. And I have two young daughters who aren't they've heard way too much about the book, but still have they're too young to read it. <laughs> But the story that I think the one lesson I want them to get out of this is find your passion in life 
And, and that was Brad Stevens' story. He graduated from DePaul University and he took a job at Eli Lilly, pharmaceutical giant here in Indy. And he was making good money. He had a really good job right out of college. And about a year in, he decided, you know, this is not my passion. This is not my purpose. And he quit, much to the chagrin of his parents and his girlfriend at the time. And he signed up to become a volunteer coach at, at Butler. And he was getting ready to wait tables at Applebee's because the, the volunteer position didn't pay anything. Now, luckily, someone left and he was able to take like a grad assistant role where he was able to make some money. But think about that journey from signing up to be an Applebee's waiter to 13 years later being the, the coach of the Celtics. But, it, you know, not that might be the exception to, to the rule. But when I speak to students here about their career paths, is sometimes you have to take a risk, you know, to do something that you're passionate about. You, you know, you have to put a roof over your head and food on the table. But when you're young, that's the time to, to pursue a risk. And he did. And I just found that to be one of the, one of my favorite stories in the book. It was absolutely mine as well, because as I'm sitting here in the studio that I built for myself, just that, just that thought of persevering and just being willing to take the job at Applebee's just to give yourself that time and just that belief that it's got to take and just what he's waking up telling himself in the morning. And then you could make the argument between the Celtics and the Lakers, you know, no bias in between either of them. But I mean, Celtics may be the most storied franchise in NBA history. And he's one of the only guys that goes from college to NBA that it actually works out. And he's still, yeah, you know, he's yeah. still rocking. Yeah. You know, and, and it's that, I think it's getting over that fear of failure that most of us have and getting out of a comfort zone. I mean, how many people would have done that, right? You're making good money right out of college and you drop it all to pursue a dream, which college coaching is tough. It's a tough profession to get in, to climb up. But you've got to throw out that fear of failure and, and go for it. And I just, it's always a story that still inspires me to this day. I mean, considering too that pharmaceutical sales reps, the ones that I know, are making a killing. So, I mean, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. He was doing really well, um, but he's doing even better now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One of the other big topics that you hit on in the book is the halo effect. And to me, this was like, you know, as I've gone back to Lexington, I got the chance to work as a runner a few times with ESPN when they would come and mm -hmm. do some of the broadcasts. And so yep. I graduated in 2015 and mm -hmm. going back now, seeing the way that the entire downtown area has basically been rebuilt and renovated and mm -hmm. everything on campus. And they've got, I mean, maybe you guys have this at Butler too, but they've got the robots that are running around doing stuff. And it's just, we don't have those yet, but yeah, <laughs> they're coming. It, it's like a rising tide raises all ships. And that, that was kind of what I, that was my main takeaway reading from this halo effect. If you touch on that a little bit. Yeah. You know, I'll use empirical evidence rather than just saying, yeah, the final fours did a lot for us. And, you know, we, we hit on really four major things that were amplified. One being applications to the school. There was a 44% rise immediately after the first final four. So when I started in 2012, we were getting about 6,500 applications a year. Now we're getting 14, 15,000. 
Wow. You know, you think about that wow. and that that's sometimes that halo effect may last a year or two. We're still seeing that not all of it's basketball. I mean, the academic re- reputation is, is strong here, but you still run into students on campus who more than a handful say Butler was on my radar for the final fours. Now though, more than ever because of the big East, because yeah. you're on Fox sports, because now you're in markets like New York and Boston and DC. And then with applications, the demographic shifted. You know, when I started, we were 60% in state, 40% out of state. It's flipped. And again, a, a strong reason for that goes back to the national presence. We see more and more students coming from New York, Boston, DC, these areas where the big East is even from some of the West coast areas. So applications were number one, the, um, the facilities, this campus is completely changed. There's a beautiful brand new business school building. Uh, Dugan hall is the name of it. Sciences renovation. We had a new residence halls. And again, with Hinkle Fieldhouse, we ultimately invested 45 million in the last 10 years. And quite frankly, Ben, these things just don't happen without those two final fours. I mean, certainly we can make attempts at them, but the ability to raise money, the ability to raise that profile in terms of applications, you know, was huge. Uh, And then the move to the Big East was just enormous. You know, the move to the Big East does not happen without the two final fours. It just doesn't. And the, the exposure that's given us. And then the fundraising, which is my area. You know, I always say I should send a thank you note every week to those final four teams. <laughs> so we've had three of our best fundraising years in history over the last decade. Right out, and it, again, you talk about kind of a slow ascent. In the first five years after the final fours, we were raising about 16 million a year. In the second half of the decade, is about 36 wow. million a year. And, and just wow. we've seen. I think one of the most impressive statistics was the decade before the two final fours, we had three donations from families that were a million or more in the 10 years since we've had, I think 25 plus (laughs) just crazy numbers. Um, But again, it was that gasoline on the fire and this, this momentum that takes off in, in all of those areas. But I will say also we've, really worked hard at staying true to ourselves and keeping our identity in the process. And it's maybe a strange comparison, but I compare it to a family winning the Powerball, right? Mm-hmm. Your, your life changes overnight. And now you've got all the publicity on you. You've got all this money and capital. And, you know, as we know, money changes people, right? So I really respect our president, our trustees in the university for really trying to adhere to who we were. And an example of that was with all those applications, we did increase our enrollment, but we made a hard line that we were not going to go above 5,000 students because that would really jeopardize who we were as a small school. You know, a lot of students come here because of the small class sizes, the intimacy. And that was tough because we're a heavily tuition dependent university. So we could have said, okay, let's go up to 7,000, right? Sure. But again, I think staying true to who you are, staying true to that Butler way, the culture, recruiting, right? We were on the map of more recruits, but we still were very diligent about bringing in student athletes who 
wanted to go to class, who wanted to graduate. So long-winded answer, all of these great things happened, but we really tried to maintain who we were in the process. And then as you try and take all of these things and you're making, I mean, is it, do you pitch people? I mean, just, I'm not really sure how that works, but just can we come back to the storytelling aspect of it and how you take all of those empirical things and then put that into a pitch or a story or a marketing pamphlet or just some way to reach somebody to get them to buy in and give them to secure a donation? You know, let's go back to that story about the players going to class the day of the national title game. Just that one story alone being embedded in thousands of people beyond Butler, that had such an impact for people who like to invest in what they feel is the true student-athlete experience of that this is a good thing in college athletics in in a world where it's not always good and players aren't going to class nor graduating. That story alone played huge dividends. For us, you know, staying out of the NCAA, not being an investigation, but, you know, hearkening back to history, you know, thinking about the Hinkle campaign and bringing people through that building and telling the stories, you know, about Milan being here, you know, and Oscar Robertson playing here and all that and hearkening back to those things. And um, just a lot of stories that resonate, that still resonate now. I mean, people still bring up those final fours still talk about the players going to class. I mean, it's crazy how many people brought that up when we were marketing the book last year. And uh, again, I think you're lucky to have that product. I, I, I don't envy my colleagues at other institutions, you know, let's take an Arizona, right? They're really good right now on the court, but it couldn't have been that easy the last couple of years with things that went off the court yeah. and other programs. So, but yeah, those, those stories have been timeless for us. How long had you thought about wanting to write a book? Was this something that you had always thought about doing? Had always had a dream of writing a book. I've been a kid who loved going to the library, the bookstores growing up. I still like the feel of a book in my hand. My wife's a Kindle person. She's still trying to get me to go to Kindle, but I I just always thought it'd be really cool. And I liked writing. But then I started really getting at it about six years ago because all of these things were, were happening at Butler. This is this is a unique story. Now, granted, I'm here and I'm biased, but this is pretty unique what's going on here. During an age in higher education, which you're aware of, is not an easy time, yeah. especially given the pandemic. And I started writing this before the pandemic, but particularly for small private liberal arts schools, enrollments were declining, financial hardships. There were questions about the value of a four-year degree. And I thought, this is a really good story. Let me see what I can do with it. But it had always been a lifelong dream. How long did it take you from starting to put together the first? I mean, where, where, do you, where did you even start? I just started writing some of the stories five or six years ago. And then it was really, this was a silver lining with the pandemic in that I knew I wouldn't be traveling as much. I knew I wouldn't be going into the office. Quite frankly, I wanted something to distract me from terrible time for the world and that's when i started cranking my working with my co-author and 
from that point, it was about six or seven months that we really had a, we thought a good draft in place. And then going through traditional publishing house or did you guys self publish or <laughs> what was that like? We, we, we did find a publisher. This was maybe an underdog story too. I mean, you've got two <laughs> unknown authors and it's just the old basically picking up the yellow pages. I probably reached out to 60 or 70 publishing houses. I probably got five or six that actually responded. You know, I, I compared it to my high school dating life. There were a lot of no's and a lot of unreturned <laughs> phone calls. But I, we fi I finally found a publisher out on the West Coast who said, you know, I, I remember those Butler teams and this, this could be a neat story. And they took a chance on us and the book did a lot better than they thought. And, and uh, so that was persistence, but we did have a publisher, but I found out a lot about how tough it is to get a book published during that process. Did you get discouraged at all? What, what kept you pushing forward? If you read 50 non-responses or, you know, 10 of them are no's and maybe two of them are like hell no's. Like what, what keeps you pushing forward in that case? A couple of things. I think I had the benefit of what I've done all my life in terms of sales and fundraising. You're used to that, right? If you're if you're doing your job, you're getting a lot of no's and rejections. But with all humility, I really believed in the story. I really believe that if we get a good draft in place, it was a great story that people would benefit. One of the challenges with a couple of the publishers who said no is that only Butler people would would like the story and buy it. And we really felt and still do, you know, we're still marketing the book, is that there are lessons in there that we think other universities can learn from, but not just universities, businesses, not-for-profits. I mean, we've had a couple of companies that have bought bulk orders and we've, we've done talks for them. But, you know, a lot of the things we've talked about on this podcast don't just apply to basketball programs. They yeah. apply to organizations in terms of culture and continuity and leadership and sticking to your values and your mission, patience, but really at the end of it, believed in the story. That's what kept me going. Yeah, I think that's the thing that jumped out at me the most was just, I'm reading about these things and yeah, we're talking about it through the lens of basketball, but people write books all the time about organizations and about cultures and just building that foundation, all the things that we've touched on. It's been, it's been cool. It's, it's through the lens of basketball, but this is stuff that relates to everything. Yeah. One of the other motivations, you know, if you go to a Barnes and Nobles and you go to like the business section, there are a ton of books on companies like Starbucks and Southwest Airlines and Marriott on, on how you take principles from those entities. There's really not one on a university. Um, there was a book done on Elon about 20 years ago. That was the other reason, Ben, that kind of believed in this is that this is a unique angle. And if you, when you read the book, there are, I think there are like 13 or 14 cutouts, uh, boxes, they call them, where we really singled out on a specific point or lesson. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to, in my opinion, the book, basketball is only a small foundation of that book. Right. It's really a lot of the principles that were applied pre-Final Fours, post-Final Fours, and, and lessons that we all can take from that story. Just a couple more questions and then we'll wrap up. Yeah. 
would you say that this is maybe one of the coolest things you've ever done or maybe the thing that you're most proud of in your career to this point? Most proud of my family, but yeah, this, I'm proud of this one for the reason you mentioned the persistence. I have such admiration for people who write a book and I compared it. I only run half marathons now. I used to run the marathons, but I compare it to training for a marathon is the discipline that it takes to do it is that every day trying to get up and write a couple pages. And, and that's how I mentally did this is if you're thinking about writing a 200 or 300 page book, it can be very daunting, but if you break it up and say, I want to write two pages today and I'm going to do that every day, stick to hard work, persistence, the persistence of trying to find a publisher, very rewarding. And then I felt, you know, I'm my own biggest critic, Ben, but I, I was really pleased with the end product. I was really pleased with the end product that I could go to bed at night saying, did the very best I could and represented Butler in the best way that I knew how. Yeah. A lot of times people will keep those rejection letters. Did you ever, you ever go back and look <laughs> at those? I'm like that. I saved them. And then the funny <laughs> thing was, I mean, I think we had even one a couple months ago. We did have a couple of these publishers follow up when the book was already out. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I didn't want to be a jerk about it and say, uh, here's the Amazon link. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but that, that was kind of rewarding to... And I think that's a good lesson in life. You know, my, my daughter recently didn't get a part in a play that she wanted. And you can use that in two ways. You can let that get you down or you can use it to motivate you. But yeah, I definitely kept a couple of those around. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm the exact same way. So I love that. Tell me about this new book that you've got coming out, Unbracketed. We've touched on it a lot, but is there anything that you want our audience to know before this thing drops? Because it's still, where are you at in the process of that? We just started taking pre-orders. I'll put a plug in, but yeah. pediment.com is, is where you can pre-order it. This book, in a way, was more interesting for me because I had basically lived the Butler story, and I knew a lot of... I knew a lot of the story. This one has required a lot of research and things that I just wasn't aware of. So we, we followed it up. We wanted to take four other universities that had done something similar. And we wanted to break them up over decades, over geographic regions. So in the 1980s, we chose Villanova, who played the perfect game in Lexington, Kentucky, and beat Georgetown. And we've all seen what they've done. We picked Gonzaga in the 1990s. We chose Davidson. There are a couple of, you could have gone a couple of different angles with that one, but we thought the Steph Curry um, and that, that in a lot of ways, not to the extent of a Gonzaga, but they have sustained success. And then this past decade, we chose Loyola. The interesting thing about this book is originally thought it was going to be similar to the first one in terms of the history of the school and how it ascended. And this book is more of a story book then, in terms of these powerful stories from each of these schools. We mentioned earlier, like Gonzaga almost closing in 1990. Villanova, team playing nearly crashed about 15 years ago. Mm. Loyola in this game of change in 1963, where Loyola played Mississippi State, and it was a critical game in integrating 
African-Americans into the sport. Mississippi State, long story short, was barred from playing integrated teams. And they broke a state law, went out of the state and played Loyola in the NCAA tournament. And that story, the Sister Jean angle. Yeah. We, we actually interviewed Sister Jean in person back in December, which was a real thrill for me. Really? Uh, Davidson, again, the Steph Curry angle where no one wanted him. So the, this one, just these really, really powerful stories that I think even the diehard college basketball fan may not be aware of, but, but also then these themes, which we've talked about the whole podcast of what have been the keys to success, you know, and you think about continuity, Mark Few going on 25 years at Gonzaga, Bob McKillop's been at Davidson 33 years, Jay Wright has been at Villanova, I think 22, Porter Moser was at Loyola for 10 when he could have gone other places, values, the value systems that they have, the, you know, again, the academic component, culture but um i'm really excited about this one it's and we hit on some topics of race um religion and then three of these schools are religious in nature uh, gonzaga Loyola or jesuit schools villanova's augustinian and how big a how big a role that these centuries old religious values play into these programs so it's a bit of a different book but i'm i'm really excited about this one I'm excited to read it, and I'll definitely be on the lookout when that thing finally comes out. Just kind of last questions: Is are you thinking about continuing to write? I mean, is this kind of like <laughs> your 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 third act, or what is this? I think I'm going to take some time off. I, I've loved it, but it is really having a second job, yeah. and it's actually a third job for me because my family comes first, and then Butler. You know, and I think one of the things is you do need some downtime to think you know, to, to take off. And, and quite frankly, I don't have that next idea yet. When the next idea hits me, I'll be inspired, but I feel like I feel pretty good about these two. And then we'll, you know, hopefully have some more years to go and we'll, we'll maybe do <laughs> something else. And then finally, give me your realist talk. What's the number one thing that you want our audience to take away? What's the thing that has helped you the most in your career? What's the thing that you believe to be true about people or life or society? Just give me some real stuff to end with. As far as the book, the first book goes, I think one thing people, whether you like college basketball or not, it goes back to that idea of the underdog. That if you're looking for inspiration in your own career, your own life, Butler was the ultimate underdog. I mean, they considered going to Division II athletics in the 1980s and were a doormat for a long time. So I think if you're looking for inspiration, underdog, I think the biggest thing for me that I always preach, I shouldn't say preach, but the biggest things for me when I talk to our students and my kids, have passion for what you're doing and always follow up. I think mm -hmm. everything in life is follow up. You know, we say we're going to do something. My rule of thumb is that less than 1% of human beings actually follow up on something. And that goes back to my career, but also this book, right? I can say I'm going to write a book, but if I don't take the steps to do it, not going to happen. If I don't write those two pages a day, it's not going to happen. If I don't follow up with the publisher, if I don't follow up on marketing the book, I'm not here with you today, right? So everything in life is follow up and passion. Awesome. This has been such an awesome conversation. I think this is uh, definitely I'm drawing a lot of inspiration from just all the all the themes that we're talking about, the underdogs and 
I love it, man. So thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story and then also sharing about these books. Ben, honored to have you. Done a lot of these and uh, you were tremendous questions, really prepared. Honor for me to do it. All right, guys, that's it. I hope you enjoyed that one. God, that was so fucking awesome. I just got to say, that is just, that is one of my favorite episodes I've ever done. That was so fun. So many great stories. And just, you know, what's funny is that we were connected on LinkedIn. I've got like, I don't know, 13, 1400 people that I'm connected with on LinkedIn, most of whom I connected with back when I was a student at the University of Kentucky. And I'm not really sure where Graham and I initially first got connected, if it was during that 2015, 16 period or later, but we've been connected for a while. And as I was going through LinkedIn and looking at people that I would want to bring on the show, it just seemed like such a great way to introduce March and to dip my feet back in the waters of that sports world. And just with everything that I've got going on right now, I certainly am relating to the underdog story, the Cinderella story. So hearing the thing about Brad Stevens working at Applebee's, give me a fucking break, man. That's like, I'm, I'm like, I feel you, G. I feel you, all right? I feel you. Those are trenches that not many people know. But when you're going after your passion and you got a dream, it's like, what did old boy Will Smith say in Pursuit of Happiness? You got a dream, you got to protect it. That's the shit that I, I'm just like, I feel it in my soul, man. That's spiritual healing right there. Listening to these stories was spiritual healing for me. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. I really did. If you did, please let us know by dropping a quick rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow along on any of the social media channels and come back next week because you know we got another banger ready to drop. All right, my friends, I will talk to you next week. I am out of here. I am Ben Tompkins. That is Real Talk.